This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and I have a special treat for you. We're skipping this week. I'm just kidding. I do have a treat. I really do. I have on the podcast Donnie Cipher of the National Automotive Service Task Force, or NASTF. So before we get to talking to him, or really just turn this over to him and let him go, let's get a word from our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Napa Auto Tech offers three-hour virtual technical classes that can be accessed from the comfort of your home. To find out what courses are available, go to NapaAutotech.com and click on the Napa Autotech class calendar link. All right. Thanks for stopping by, Donnie. I really, really appreciate it. I know you're a busy, busy guy. No, it's my pleasure, Matt. Always fun to get to talk about what we do. Well, in your case, it's travel. Well, I was joking before we get started, sort of a professional travel agent, which by the way, when I was in high school, I worked for a travel agency, only I delivered the tickets instead of using them. <laughs> oh, that just comes full circle. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this time of year, you know, spring and oddly enough, the end of the year, like November, December are really, really busy times because of all the different groups that we're involved with. So a lot of travel, a lot of trade shows. And so this is really that time of year where if, if you're lucky, you can get home for a few days every month. Yeah, it's important that you're in the booth because I know some attendees at these trade shows who will seek out your booth, especially when you're not around and raise all hell about how horrible NAS stuff is when you're not around. And then when you do show up and blow their cover, it's not as funny as it was. Well, I'm there and things you don't like, things you don't understand, things you don't know, which usually those all go hand in hand. You know, all you really have to do is ask. Yeah, they were very good. They were just surprised. It was awesome. They had, they didn't know me, which is nobody knows me, but I was going off about how you guys are ruining the industry and they were a bit taken aback. And then you showed up and blew my cover and told them I was kidding. <laughs> I mean, it was the truth, but I was kidding. <laughs> Anyways, for people listening, they don't know you and I've known you for a little while, at least. Your background is this industry. It's this profession. Yeah. So I started working on cars and building engines when I was 10 years old. The first engine I built, my dad had to pick up the big parts and put them in for me because I wasn't big enough to do it. Well, I was pulling on torque wrenches when I had to basically put a foot on each side of a small block Chevy and yank. Back then you could get away with that kind of stuff too. But yeah, so my family's been in the business since the late fifties. My grandfather built chassis for race cars, for dragsters and things like that, and his own designs and that sort of thing. And both my father and his twin brother were the hot rodder kids. They were high school kids at that time. And my dad was sort of a contemporary with Don Garlett. So he that's who he wanted to be. And so he built a dragster, nearly killed himself. And had my mom not said, I'm not marrying you. If you keep driving that thing, I wouldn't be here. So anyway, that's kind of how we got started. And then my dad, sort of like a lot of us, he started repairing cars to fund his drag racing habit. And so it was, it was sort of a gateway thing. Auto repair was a gateway drug for the other piece. But then he started a professional business. Our business is now 62 years old. I'm out of it now. My brother's running it. Just gone too much to be of any assistance. But long and short of it is our approach to running our business from the very beginning has always been collaborative. And if a fellow shop owner wandered in and said, how do you guys do this? If we just show them, 
course, that's, you know, I taught for years, both technical and, and management training. So the NASDAQ thing kind of came about because I was on the board of directors for NASDAQ. I had just finished being chairman of ASA. Board came to me because our director was retiring and said, can you run this thing interim? Because you kind of work with him all the time and you know what's going on. And we're kind of scrambling here because we don't have a lot of time to replace him. Okay. All right. I'll fit that into my schedule somewhere. So I ran it for about two and a half months. And, and then they're like, well, you're going to like apply to stay, right? And at that point, I was like, dad and I talked about it. He's like, I think you should do it. So that's kind of how it all came to be. I interviewed against the other folks that were looking for the position, some, re- some really qualified folks. And, and so the board decided that I had the combination of management skills and technical background to do it. So that's how I came to be here. Every year, they seem to renew my contract and NASDAQ grows every year. So we had a really outdated database that had started in 2008 and had 7,000 email addresses, most of which that bounced when I started. And now we just rounded 39,000 members. So that makes us the biggest automotive repair trade association out there by a long, long shot. And part of it is because the wisdom or accidental wisdom of the folks who founded NASDAQ in 2000 was that the membership needed to be free because the whole idea was we're an information disseminating organization. So very simply, identify and resolve gaps. Gaps meaning I can't do it in service information, tool information, and training information. And those get pretty broad because the vehicle security professional thing came about. So NASDAQ was founded in 2000. It was a extension of that Arizona R2R project there in like 97 to to uh, around the same time period. And it was created by automakers and independent aftermarket together. A bunch of associations threw money into the thing to get it off the ground, basically became self-sufficient in about 2008 or 2009. It was at that point in time that the vehicle security professional registry was being created. And it was also a joint venture between several organizations who basically now have all sort of they're not involved in it anymore. Uh, It's down to NASDAQ and the National Insurance Crime Bureau picked it up and kept it running. So, you know, that's kind of in a nutshell how we got created. Our board is made up of 15 folks that by requirements have to meet certain criteria. They have to be folks who've got strong connections throughout their sector of the industry. And they come from automakers and repair facilities. Those are our two biggest member groups, as they should be. And then we've got tool information folks, got service information folks, training. Then we've got a, a few sort of spots that we can use for to fill in where, where something is going on that, you know, maybe we need a board member who's got expertise in that. So currently our chairman is Bob Stewart with General Motors, who has been on the NASDAQ board for, for several years. In fact, I think he and I were both joined the board at about the same time. And Bob is a hardcore NASDAQ guy. He wants to see this thing go and wants to see it succeed and see technicians able to repair cars without drama. So that's kind of the the structure. In fact, our current co-chair, Chris Gardner, who's with the Motor Equipment Manufacturing Association, Chris brings you know, an amazing association management background, not to mention he's a techie too. He doesn't seem as techy as some of us who turn a wrench, but that guy knows his stuff. So he's there. Greg Potter from from ETI is our secretary treasurer currently. And Mark Saxenberg, who was with Toyota for a number of years and was our chairman for a number of years. And we call him the godfather of SDRM. 
because he and a couple of others were the driving force to get this thing off the ground. And initially to resolve, and a lot of people don't know this, but initially to resolve immobilizer actions, the key thing was an accident. The design of the registry was already pretty much in place. They knew where they were going. And then California was was working on this key related key code, pin code licensing thing where, you know, they wanted people to have access to it. Well, the automakers said, we're not going to do this just in California. We're going to do it. Let's do it across the country. And, and that was, that was NASDAQ that drove that. NASDAQ, Aloha were the key drivers behind that. And so they built the registry to do all the things that it does. And I mean, initially it was a glorified spreadsheet with secure access to a server so that everybody that was listed in it could be validated against an OEM website. Mark said, if we had envisioned where it's go- where it went today, then, you know, we would have written it differently. But, th- you know, there's no way. I mean, you look at what's happened in basically that was launched in 2007. So if you look at what has happened in that time, not even 20 years, you don't recognize cars from what we had in 2007. I'm pretty sure I met Bob either before NASDAQ or he was just started. It was quite a while ago. Really, him and Mark Sasson, both of them, for being OE people, have battled hard for us in the independent world to be able to do stuff. Like, they've sold to whoever was above them how important it was to empower independent techs to have access to be able to properly service their vehicles as a long-term, it would have long-term positive outcomes the manufacturers of those vehicles to continue to sell vehicles because they were serviceable and they weren't trapping that market. It wasn't that strong of a long-term strategy. And so, yeah, I met Bob early on. I think they're talking about J2534 uh, doing OE level scan tool, OE scan tool level stuff. And that was just like the beginning of that. And that's when I met him. And then I think Mark at least on IETN, long-held, very, very respected position or, or at least view of the independent service tech as battling for their fate and their interest. And I mean, TechStream was as easy to get going with a J tool as anything on the planet. It was it was so nice. And he was very much a part of that. Oh, n- there's no question. He and at, at kind of slightly different launch points in time have been champions of this mission to do exactly what you said, to help automakers understand that if they don't already, having independence capable of fixing your cars anywhere, anytime will s- resell a vehicle. And it's clear, you look at the biggest brands and you look at the biggest NASDAQ supporters, any questions. So it's worked that way, but it, but it's not just because they've been supporting NASDAQ. It's because that has been their culture. And Toyota says, we don't care who fixes our vehicle, whether it's the owner or a de- one of our dealers or it's a repair technician. We don't care who fixes the vehicle. We just want to make sure they have all the tools they need to do it the way we would like to see it done. That mentality has spread to brands who didn't have it before. And I'll be the first to admit that I've kind of used General Motors, Toyota, Ford as leverage to make those things happen with others. It's like, well, you know, you just figure out who they want to be when they grow up. And that's what you tell them about, right? (laughs) Well, if you guys want to get as big as fill in the blank, this is how they do it. And it's changed immensely over the years. And and I'm thinking mainly, I guess, scan tools and service information off the cuff. But yeah, it's changed immensely with some car manufacturers. Back in the day. So, you know, NASDAQ structure is that we used to have five teams 
that, you know, we call them committees, but, you know, now we're hip, so we call them teams. So now got four teams because there was kind of this, oh, superfluous thing going on with part of one of our groups. So we had a collision group, we had a service information committee, and we had like the tool committee, the tool and equipment committee. But there's so much overlap. And what I noticed after I started was like, okay, so we're having a meeting every week, one right after the other, and the same people are on it. And we're having to recap what we talked about on the last one, but they were already there. So I said, hey, how do you all feel about like, let's put all of those committees into one team and call it service technology. And so that's how we got down to four teams. And and their job is to listen to, give feedback to, and, um, and even, and in many cases, provide ideas to us on what needs to happen. And, and the way I say in many cases is I have struggle to drag ideas out of these teams. And yet I know they have them. We had a communications team call today and I mean, it took a while to get the faucet open, but man, once I cranked that thing open, we couldn't shut it off. So, which is fantastic. That's what we want to hear. What can't you do? What's hard? What's easy? Where are we doing it really well? Where do you need help? And what can we do? And so that's the purpose of this organization is to support technicians. Currently, we have four automakers on the board of directors, which we've never had before. So we've got Travis from Volkswagen, who is like Bob and, and others that, you know, he's just a champion for folks that repair their vehicles. We, and we've got Craig Jeffries from Subaru, who's the same. You know, he's definitely a champion for getting his vehicles fixed by whomever wants to fix them. We've got, of course, Dave Stovall from Toyota, who's, you know, pretty well known. He's been uh, on several of our presentations that we do. And he does a fantastic job. And not to mention, he's a really funny guy. If you ever get a chance to talk to him, he's got quite the sense of humor. And then, of course, Bob Stewart is, you know, his current chair with, with GM. So, I mean, to have four, we have four technicians and we have four OEs, which we've never had that big a number of both before. But that's because we have singular positions filled in, in the other areas because we have such a strong board that one person in tool and equipment is enough. And, and the one that we've got right now, Bob Augustine can, can over not only scan tools, but he can overlap into service. And he's actually held, he's held several different positions on this board because of the changes in jobs that he's had. And of course, and he's got his collision back. Well, he was with Vtronics way back in the day. That's what I first met him or knew of him. And then Christian Brothers. And then I think maybe technically Drew Tech for a while, but is it Opus or is it? It's Opus that he's with now. Yeah. So, you know, and then we've got Mike Tanner from AutoCare, who's not on our board, but he um, is one of the co-chairs of the Service Technology Committee. And he does that committee with Jason Kahn from Ford. I, I'm not going to run down every single one because we'd be here all night just doing that. But the point I'm, I guess I'm trying to make is nothing NASTEP does happens in a vacuum. There are stakeholders from every area of the industry that are, I take stuff to them. I'm like, okay. Techs are telling me this. This is how we want to approach it. That stuff gets modified, adjusted, sometimes completely thrown out, but whatever needs to happen. I mean, we saw, I, I think you were involved in some of this, the uh, service technology calls a, a while back when we were seeing this just unprecedented number of issues with folks having reprogramming events that were going sideways. It wasn't 
the whole brand, it was specific platforms. And so the more that we dug into that, the more it became evident we needed to help some way. And the automakers don't have like a history of that kind of stuff that they can just share. While they may know some, they don't necessarily connect the dots through support. So we created this new knowledge base piece. It's part of our website. It's free to all of our members. It's free to be a member. It's free to use this thing. This knowledge base is set up so that you can search by make, model, year, engine, you know, whatever. You can search by most any detail that you want to look for and look for a reprogramming event. How do I set up this particular scan tool? Because one of the things that we hear, we hear a lot on the support desk is, okay, I bought all this stuff. Now what do I do with it? Or, or I've got two <laughs> months left on my one year subscription and I still don't have it working. What do I do with it? So I went to Tanner Brandt, who had quite a database of these types of of reprogramming events. And I said, Tanner, help me with this. So he and then Mohan Sethi, who runs Collabtech, you know, who's worked with Mala, also a guy with deep, deep industry connections. The great platform. Oh, yeah. And so they built us a sort of customized version of it so that in addition to supporting those things that Team ST identified, we could also, to try to make our support faster and more in depth, we've now got videos of all of the various things you need to know about signing up to be a NASDAQ member. How do I do VSP transactions and all that kind of thing? We've got those in there, including lots of little tips to just save you time. And, uh, you know, so I'll throw an idea over to Tanner and say, hey, what do you think? And he'll come back with, I think we could do it this way. And, you know, next thing I know, it's like Tanner's just shared a new video. So I think that's worked out really well. And, you know, we're just going to keep building on that. In fact, we're going to be adding that to our support desk directly here in the near future. So calling support isn't working for us. There's too many of you now. When there was six or 7,000 total, we got six or 7,000 VSPs now. It's just too many people. So to, to give a 30-minute phone call to. So what we're trying to do now is put videos together that do things that even the support agents can't do over the phone. And then if we still are struggling, then the agents will pick up and call. And uh, so we're hoping that really speeds up for our folks that are trying to get in their ability to get stuff done. So, you know, we got that stuff coming up here in the near future. We also, I'm really excited about this. It's stupid, but I'm really excited about it because I've got so much of my life into it now. Jaguar Land Rover has been working for quite some time to move to a cloud-based setup with their topics. That has been a problem for us because we're running a server that's running Windows 2008 to support them, which is, I got the hell beat out of me by our insurance company because here we are cybersecurity specialists and we got to run this server. So we've got it completely separate from SDRM so it can work, but you know, it's got problems. And as if you work on Jaguar, as you know, it's been down quite a bit, not our server, but the the communication between their service because it's just old and it's outdated. And it runs into security crashes and stuff like that. Heck, we put it on a brand new machine to try to speed it up and it made it worse. So long and short of it is we finally have worked through that. And in the process, I got key codes out of them, which we've never had. So Jaguar and Land Rover will now have key codes. They've had the button on their site, but if you paid for it, you couldn't get a refund. Just didn't work either. But, but now it works. The cloud-based topics is really speedy. We had a demonstration of it here a few days ago. But I'm not exaggerating when I say there were 126 emails involved in getting this thing to launch. And there was only two at NASDAQ. So it was a huge international 
operation. We had India and the UK and the United States and Canada involved in getting this thing off the ground. So that's going to be launched February 12th. I mean, I believe it. Anybody that digs deep into, I guess not terribly deep, but deep enough into Jaguar Land Rovers. I mean, I had to work to have a computer, find a computer to run JLR uh, IDS. It had to be Windows 7 32-bit. Otherwise, it wouldn't work properly or you had to do a lot of hoop jumping. So I just got one. And then uh, ultimately, I got a AutoLogic, an old blue box AutoLogic to work on it because sometimes that was the only thing that was going to do what I need, needed to do. So it's kind of exciting that they're kind of modernizing a little bit. They knew they were going to be moving to this and have had the platform built. They did not expect some of the things that have happened to them from a corporate point of view. And so a lot of this stuff just got backburnered and backburnered. And it took, because it was a violation of EPA regs and California law, it took a letter from the California Air Resource Board chief to the Auto Alliance, who then got hold of a, a compliance guy in Washington, D.C. for JLR, who called me like 30 minutes after he received the email and said, what the heck's going on? And, and I'm like, wow, I've been working on this since like October of 2017. And this was in, you know, mid 2023. And uh, so we were also able in that same discussion to get scan tool data, the, the information that, that scan tool makers use to create their tools. That's been unavailable. Well, so the reason it's been unavailable is because in, a, in essence, just to kind of make it really simple, Somebody wasn't reading an email box. They didn't even have it set up. So when a toolmaker would send a request for licensing to JLR, there was nobody to receive it. And because there had been, you know, the change from Ford to here to there and then different management folks and all of those shifts that occurred. And I'm telling you this story not because it's just about JLR, but this is what we go through with automakers. You know, Stellantis has had similar issues because of they've been married and divorced from different brands multiple times. And I mean, some of the stuff that they were able to do perfectly 10 years ago, they don't have access to anymore because it doesn't belong to them anymore. And uh, like we, we can't get sprinter keys for some sprinters. We can't get a key for a crossfire. There's no way, you know, and, and so stuff like that has just got to make, it makes technicians crazy. It forces us to find workarounds that our hands are forced. That's exactly what it does. And, and that's one of the things I try to tell automakers all the time. To the highest degree that you can bring the exact same experience that a dealer tech has, that is the degree to which aftermarket technicians will not have to play with stuff and potentially cause problems for themselves, for you, and for the vehicle owners when things go sideways. We've got companies out there right now, if, if you're downloading some of these hacks of software, they're more than hacked. They've got malware embedded in them. So, you know, they're, they're going to take advantage of your willingness to give them $34 for something that A, maybe you shouldn't have at all, or B, was a lot more money to begin with. And then they're going to uh, give you a little gift added to your computer so they can see everything you're doing. So, well, like you said, though, with the key stuff, like even the dealers, there's some of those, the dealers can't do anything legitimately. So now we're not necessarily using like hack software to do it. We're using, I would say, like legitimate software and tools. But we're going to like the chip level, which I know, I mean, sidebar, in some cases, it's made us even better techs. But like you said, it does open up issues for them and us by having to do that, you know, bricking modules and 
kind of learn that on the fly like that, but it also opens up problems for them making this. I don't want to say they're making it intentionally difficult for us to do that. They just don't have any protocols to do it. Uh, or if they did, they're gone. Agreed. There's protocols that maybe don't exist anymore, or there's not a support plan for legacy vehicles. I want to speak to that because I deal with that quite a bit, as you might have guessed. So there's a lot of things that happen. I mean, we've, so we've sort of already talked about a couple of brands who have been bought and sold, and that, that caused some problems. The other thing that happens is there's not a lot of appetite at the upper management level to keep systems for vehicles that are 15 years and older running. So they've kind of got a little bit of legislative action that is sitting out there, some laws on the books that sort of keep them supporting up to about 15 years. But once they get past that, service information and tool folks, they don't get any money at automakers. I mean, for the importance of what they do, they just don't get a lot of importance. Marketing department and brand protection get all the money. And so that makes it really a struggle for them. So a lot of times for us to get something done, I have to bring a solution to the automaker instead of a problem. So where I think a lot of people jump up and down about, oh my God, NASDAQ's doing this and NASDAQ's doing that. It's like, because if we don't, there isn't anything. And, and we've got this tool. I mean, we built SDRM originally so that it could validate users for key codes and immobilizer codes. Well, it does a lot, lot, lot more than that now. And it's built so that we can support automakers in endeavors that they couldn't do without us, but they're doing it for our members. And the beauty of this is that because we're a not-for-profit, we, we are able to take, I mean, virtually, we spend 80% of what we make on members. And we save a little bit because that's part of our my requirement as the manager is to save a little bit of money uh, so that if there's ever a time when we got a project that we need to do or, you know, there's some big expense that is unforeseen, all the stuff that you do when you run a business. And, and I'll just give you one example. So when the Mach-E, Ford's Mach-E came out, they got shipped from Mexico to various places in the United States and they all showed up with no keys because somebody figured out how to snag all the keys. Well, there was a loss of an individual in the stream. That individual was the connection back to NASDAQ and also to their vendor who did who goes out and fixes key problems. So I get a very upset vice president on the phone asking me what I'm going to do about their missing keys. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? I got a lot of locksmiths I could send out. And he thought that that's what we did for them. It's very not uncommon. <laughs> So I said, well, okay, so tell me what's going on. I got all these cars. They're promised. They're now, most of them are three weeks to a month late in being delivered to the dealership so that the person who bought it can pick it up and, you know, and we're getting bad press and, and these cars are sitting here getting dust on them because, you know, they don't have keys. So we got a call together that day with like six or eight Ford folks and said, tell us what the process is. Found somebody who knew who their vendor was. The vendor was actually trying to get hold of them as well. <laughs> Found somebody to step into that position. They did. I mean, we didn't do any of this. But as I'm listening, I'm like, I got a solution for you. It turns out they've got their end of line programming that when they put all the, the firmware in the vehicle, when all of that happens, it's done on a system that's separate from the system that Motocraft Service uses, do service information and key codes and immobilize all that. For a while, from the time a vehicle is built till the time it shows up at the dealership lot, that car is in limbo if its keys get lost. And of course, they get lost all the time because people steal them. Typically, our VSPs are the ones who get called out to do that. They work for the vendor who, who does this all over the country. And 
they were emailing the key codes for brand new vehicles around. This doesn't seem like the most secure thing when you're actually asking us to validate these folks and you don't even know who's actually working on the car. Oh, yeah, well, we've had a few cars disappear. I suppose you, that would be unlikely. So anyway, we created a process for them. And, and if you're if you've done if you've worked for their vendor, that process. But in essence, there's a secure upload of that information only on the VINs where it's necessary so that when our VSPs get out, it doesn't matter which VSP. So it's not like they're sending information to a specific person who then maybe gets sick that day and can't go work on the car. When you get to that car, you log into to the registry and you say, I'm working on this VIN number. And then we have to give us eight because we already know it's Ford. They get, actually, I think they only give us six. You just give us the serial number of the, of the thing. And is this the car you're looking for? You know, we give them information so they can match it up. And yep, that's that's my car. Because, you know, sometimes these guys are working on a train car way up in the air. So then we provide them with the code and it's sort of mission impossible style. It's only good for a little bit and then it disappears and it's purged out of the registry. So that's just one example of a tool we created using the capabilities of SDRM. And that process wound up being the way key codes are delivered in Australia. Nobody goes to an automaker's website except General Motors because they had this long standing legacy application that was worldwide. But everybody else gets their key codes right directly out of ASRA, which is our sister organization that we build all the backend stuff for them, the server stuff and, and the applications. So you just go on there and you say, I'm working on this VIN number. You fill out your D1. We try not to call it a D1, but the Australians are already calling it a D1 too. So it is what it is. And then you hit submit. I mean, you pay right on the app, you hit submit and you get your key code. And with most of the automakers, it is instantaneous. For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa Autotech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa Autotech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa Autotech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa Autotech offers, contact NapaAutotech.com. I'm not prepared, really, to make the pitch now and not that I would ever be in a position to make such a pitch, but I feel like there's a very, very strong game theory type pitch to the automakers about providing us information or supporting the legacy information and tooling and stuff because 
the way it's working out now is they're kind of forcing us into something called an imperfect information game, which is very much like poker. They have us playing Texas Hold'em with these cars where it would make more sense if they would have us playing a more perfect information game like chess. I'm not going to go into like a lot of game theory stuff here, but I feel like that is the foundation of a really good argument and sales pitch to them to go, oh, maybe we should get some funding over here to help with that because that makes sense. But yeah, we've been dropping a lot of acronyms and stuff like VSP and SDRM and all that. D1, I don't know if we've even mentioned what that is. I know a lot of people listening already know, but for those of that don't, would you want to give them kind of a rundown? Yeah, I'll sort of give you a historical thing. And in 2007, a group of our board members, ALOA, National Insurance Crime Bureau, and a few other smaller organizations that are not involved. I mean, ASA was involved and they built the first secure data release model for the automotive industry. Now, a secure data release model isn't a unique thing. It's just that usually it is in intelligence organizations more than it is in in automotive repair. But let's face it, when they decided to name this organization, they also gave it a grandiose name with task force at the end of it. And, uh, you know, well, that's because it's a man, it's a man project, right? So, so when they decided to do a secure data release model, the whole idea behind it was let's get immobilizer codes out there so technicians can complete these repairs on cars. And, and of course, at that point in time, the Chrysler pin code was a huge deal and how to access it. Um, and, and other brands had that. So along the way, key codes came about also because California was passing a law and automakers wanted to deliver key codes, but they really wanted to know who was going to get those key codes. And they didn't want the responsibility nor the liability of vetting them themselves. So the natural place to put that from their point of view was this co-opted aftermarket OE organization, NASDAQ. So that's how it got built out. And so when we first started, it was mostly locksmiths. And the title of the thing was locksmith ID. And that basically became not true by about, let's say 2014. Service repair had pretty much matched the the level of locksmiths. So when we redesigned the completely opaque you were emailing to get a password change, which just frightened me when I learned about it. When we replaced that with SDRM2, which is the online version of this that you can find at nastf.org. When we replaced that and built out the new version, we also, at the same time, added on a bunch of other features like two-form factor authentication. And we changed the name of that individual to a vehicle security professional because that was kind of the accepted name that was already going on in locksmithing to sort of differentiate between the folks who did commercial residential and the folks who did vehicles. So we went to vehicle security professional. Also at that same time, we created a do-it-yourself place where that customer authorization form, proof of authority is what it is. You prove to NASDAQ through a form that the customer gave you permission to make a key for their car. Why is that important? Because there are bad guys. And we have a gentleman running the registry for us. We call him the registry manager who has been with me since, well, really in 18. 
we were working on a couple of theft cases when he was still with Department of Homeland Security in their investigative arm. He was working on bank fraud and car theft and those sorts of things. And when and so eventually the, our government couldn't figure out what to do with him anymore because they didn't have whatever a position for him. I'll take him. So so he came on board and he's, he's amazing. Really even handed his approach with the VSPs. You get your day in court. If you think you, if we think you screwed up and you think you didn't screw up, he's very, very fair. When you think about how many VSPs and actions we've got, I think there's been about 160 people who have not made the cut or have been removed. They've been removed for cause. We've only had six appeals since 2018. And of those, only one time did they overturn his decision and they didn't fully overturn it. They just basically said, okay, let's let him try again in six months. You know, the, the approach that he takes, I know there's a lot of folks that come up with other stories about how nobody gets in and that's just not true. It's very, very small percentage of folks that don't. If you've got a felony background, if you've stolen cars, you're probably not getting in unless it was a good long time ago and you've been a model citizen ever since. But if you have some sort of bad decision-making process, you don't tell us about it, and then you lie to us about it, that can be very difficult to get in on. If you've had, I mean, because you know, some states it's a felony to speed. So you're not going to not get in because you speed, because God knows automotive technicians, none of us would get in. I mean, that's part of our normal test drive routine, right? Honest officer, I was just trying to get it up to 60 miles an hour so I could see what would happen and say, well, yeah, but this is a 30 mile an hour road with a school sign on. But at any rate, we say that a felony may keep you out of the registry, but we're looking for good decisions and that we can trust you with somebody's information because ultimately you're responsible, but we don't look good if we don't have professionals. And our goal when John came on to work with us was to give this system, this program, absolute integrity. We expect our technicians to be above board on all things. People make mistakes. We have technicians who get socially engineered by professional con people. Happens. It's very rare because we've tried to get out there and say, hey, here's what can happen. Be careful of this. Be careful of that. I mean, the ex-husband, ex-wife thing is still one of our biggest fraud things. They're trying to get to each other and they pull a locksmith in the middle of their life. We had a guy who accidentally stole somebody else's car because he didn't bother to read the VIN, went to a mall lot. And I mean, it wasn't even the wrong model of car. And when he realized what he did, he went to the police. And you know what? He was not worried about the police. He was worried about the registry manager. So who said, really, all you had to do the first time was to pick up the phone and say, can you help me figure out who owns this car that I stole? So we can figure it out. It was comical. So this guy calls the actual guy who owned the vehicle, who he took from the mall parking lot and wants him to give him his driver's license so he can put it on the D1. And this guy calls us and says, what the hell? So stuff happens. We get it. But you also have to look at the numbers. Nobody's stealing cars through the registry. Actual bad actors, maybe six we had last year where somebody paid somebody to do something they shouldn't have done and they probably knew better. But just absolutely intentional, felonious kind of actions, it's not happening. So the program is succeeding with respect to that. We had arguably about 2,500 active VSPs 
back before we launched the SDRM2 in 2018. Right now, after we take out our admins and the automaker accounts that have that type of access, we have about 7,000 VSPs. It's actually over 7,000 now. And about a fifth of them are the sub accounts because the locksmiths tend to use that sub account to manage their, their teams. And so it, you know, the program is growing rapidly. And I guess the one other thing that you went, you asked about what's new. A lot of folks have probably heard about this cross industry scan tool validation program. And if you've watched my presentations, you have the facts. If you've looked at some of the posts that have been sent to me, I don't even know where some of this stuff came from, but here's the mission. The mission was we've got a lot of car theft. Since 2020, it's the highest it has ever been ever. And it's crazy numbers. And there are a lot of things leading to and causing that, but but it is a high level of high-tech theft and violent theft, right? Both of which are not good for either technicians or vehicle owners. And the other theft that we have going on in crazy numbers is scan tools. Because the tools have the ability to, in effect, be used for illicit work without any authentication, they're out there. And and so the bad guys steal them. We've got members who've had their vans knocked over three times. And we've had members shot at. We've had one member who was hospitalized for six months after getting hijacked on a simple make a key deal. Went out to make a key. He's told all the vehicles out back. He got out there. They didn't just hold him at gunpoint and to take his tools. They just shot him. These guys are, they're not in their right mind anyway, by and large. They're trying to feed some habit and they're dangerous. So I don't want them near our people. So we have been canvassing and cajoling and begging the industry to do something about this since 22. You know, NICB, Rusty uh, Russell, who's worked with us from NICB, he's made presentations. I've made presentations. John has. Well, finally, we got some legs on this thing in uh, May of 22 to go out and build a tool that would support the aftermarket to have similar functionality to, for example, what Ford does when you need to put in a VSP ID and passcode when you need to do a programming event that is security related. It's fundamentally the exact same thing, but I was able to get a couple of handy little things in here. First off, because the scan tool is on the bus and knows the vehicle and knows where it's at and things like that, we don't need that customer authorization form. We think we can safely, and if everybody plays nice, we'll be able to keep this. And I might even be able to push it further. But we'll be coming out with a new authentication app. I mean, we'll still use Authy for a while because we don't want people to have to just drop everything and learn a new one. But we're going to have a new authentication app. And so between its capabilities and SDRM's capabilities and the scan tool makers have all agreed to a standard on how we're going to create a payload, the tool and SDRM will build your D1 for you and then close the transaction. And if you've had a, like, let's say you would, because this is very common, let's say you had to go get a key code first. As soon as it sees that VIN, it links all of those together. That already happens in the background and our VSPs just don't know about it because we, we save you from having to go out and say, well, there's my D1 and here's my transaction. The system's looking for matching VINs from that technician. It puts them together and closes them. It's going to do the same thing. It's going to bundle up that transaction. So we can say, Matt bought a key code, Matt programmed this car, and then Matt sent it off on its way. And all of that 
without anything from you except that initial D1 that you do with the automaker on their website. And so if you're using a tool to do some immobilizer routine that does not require any kind of interface with the automaker, you're just going to do that. It's going to screen that says enter your VSP ID and your passcode. And when you do that, off you go. They'll validate back through us, through their server. We've already tested this with several scan tool makers. Uh, We've had this in a test environment since the end of 22. And so it's speedy. It won't hold you up. And if you are in the middle of nowhere and you've got no cellular, no internet, no way to connect for the brands, the tool brands that, that choose to add that to their tool, we've got what we call an offline process. And that tool will store those transactions and then upload them when you get back to connectivity. SDRM will bunch them, set them up as transactions under those VINs and and off you go. So there's a few more steps involved in that piece so that, again, we can validate that that tool is not in the hands of somebody who shouldn't have it. So in the hands of somebody who has it, it's logged back into the tool on the tool side of it. And then it's validates your VSP ID and passcode because our system can actually validate and generate the new one. We'll be able to generate passcodes even if you don't have connectivity that will then match up later. So that's coming down the road. We're looking to launch mid-March to the end of March on this. And one of our big big concerns was, are we going to have people all up to speed? Are they, are they going to be First off, those that don't have VSP IDs, are they going to get one in time? I do not want to put locksmiths out of business. So I've been using a sort of unusual communication technique, and that is all I've been doing is just saying, so we got this thing coming. You should check it out. It's far more powerful than me doing a 30-minute presentation on it. And it winds up on all the forums. And this, even if I had done the 30-minute presentation, it still winds up all twisted around out there. But we try to make sure that there are key folks who are respected and who understand, you know, our mission, who understand the process and can share it. So thank you for having me here so that we can pass this along. The goal of this is not to create more VSPs. It's a result. The goal of this is to protect our technicians and to cut car theft down and keep these tools out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Now we had five states trying to push laws that were all different and would have meant that you would have to have another bureaucracy that you'd have to go to to even buy a tool. And I kind of saw that as, okay, then the next step will be the Second Amendment because it was looking exactly like it. And so I decided, let's talk to these folks who are trying to pass these laws and see where they're at. Our team went out. Um, as you know, Holly Wolf came from a, a lobbying background. And because we're a 501c6, perfectly in our wheelhouse to, we don't really lobby, we educate. We just say, before you guys make this decision, can we teach you some things? And, you know, we show them around our service information request site on Diagnostic Network. We show them how our process works. So those states said, okay, we like your idea better. Let's do that. And you let us know. But if you guys don't get it done, we'll be doing it for you. And of course, you know, we're, we're close. We don't have anybody putting pressure on us right now because they've kind of all been busy with all this other stuff, but we've been staying actively engaged with them. There was a federal effort to pass a law that it would have added more security to newer, newer cars. And, and we showed them every time you guys add security, they figure out how to hack it almost immediately. So we need to manage people, not security. The security's there. It's good. It keeps the casual people from stealing it. It doesn't keep the professionals from stealing it. So let's manage it so the professionals are in charge of this. And so that's our goal. Our goal is to take the scammers out of the program and some of the locksmiths 
have given us all kinds of input on how to do that best. And we think we've got those things integrated to make it easier for folks that are in diagnostic environment when they've got this, they they just plug in some stuff and off they go. And yeah, they may be used to being able to sidestep that, but we are talking about about six seconds of your time. Most of our VSPs, they know their they know their VSP ID off the top of their head. They can rattle it off. They put it in email all the time. I'm like, I don't need it. I can look you up. But anyway, so that's the whole crux of what this program is about. I have to set deadlines for things to get out or they never get out. So we were thinking this was all going to launch in October of last year. I think I even did a presentation to that fact. We had toolmakers ready, but there's a lot of sign-offs on this thing. I mean, there, there are so many stakeholders. I never did a program with this many stakeholders before that I had to get everybody all on the same page and all understanding how it was going to work. But the tool companies have been very supportive. In a nutshell, if you're doing any kind of key transaction, that includes add a key, which you've never had to do before. But that has become, in effect, one of the top ways to steal cars now because so many tools have figured out how to do that as opposed to just doing the all keys lost thing. So uh, outside of, of just flat, leaving the keys in the car, which is still the number one way to steal a car, amazingly. And then this hijacking thing that's going on. High tech is is next in line. So we're hoping to make a big dent in that. We got to get down from over a million cars stolen a year. When you think about how many cars are produced every year, that means you got about a one in what, 12 to 16 chance of having your car stolen. If you look at against, not against vehicles in operation, but, you know, production that year. And, you know, they're not stealing. People think they're stealing the newest cars. They're not. They're stealing older stuff. I mean, you'd be surprised at what's on the top list of what's stolen. Uh, some of the brands have had struggles because TikTok has blown up their work. I was just going to say that. Oh, you beat me to it. No, go ahead. I would have guessed Hyundai Kia just because of the TikTok stuff. And then people go and try it. They're up there, but they're not the highest because there aren't as many of them as there are F-150s or Tahoe's. And... There's crazy schemes out there. It's amazing they get away with it. Um, they will effectively syn- create a synthetic ID for a vehicle, change all of its stickers and change its VIN tag and put a little device in the back of the diagnostic link to tell the scan tool that this is the VIN. So a, a cop that's looking, all they're looking for is VIN. They weren't diagnosing. They weren't trying to talk to modules. So, you know, one of the things we did with NICB was teach the cops, if you're going to connect your scan tool, try to do something and see what happens. Because we had guys, NASDAQ members, one of our board members, Keith Perkins, who said, you know, this car isn't even talking to me except to tell me what its VIN is. And sure enough, got up behind there and there's a little box in there that's that's faking it. And there's other situations where all the other VINs on the vehicle don't match that one that it's reporting as the VIN of the vehicle. And so that's our techs. I mean, that's our members who are coming to us and saying, I think there's a problem here. And then law enforcement gets involved. So we're capturing these vehicles through a little education. So anyway, that's the VSP program. I mean, kind of in a nutshell, there there, um, there are no other new items coming with it. We are doing some redesign on the website for, you know, the umpteen thousandth time because we try to see how everybody's using it and then try to put more tools out there for them. But the free part of the website, the part that we created, gosh, I guess it's only been about six months ago where, you know, it's nastaf.org and you don't have to have a login to get to it that has all the information about how do you become a member and we are in that. That is all getting overhauled to make it even simpler to navigate for those folks. Because with as many of you as there are, the support desk, we've added another person and a half and we still can't keep up. I mean, I think word's getting out. We got to have it. And I don't know if it's going to 
move past a mobilizer. Like fundamentally, I just want to be able to do what I need to do to fix the car or figure the car out. That's what I care about. So if I want to, uh, you know, replace a module and it's part of a deemed part of a mobilizer or theft, and therefore I have to meet certain criteria and possess, you know, a credential VSP to do it, I'm on board. And most people I know that I can't think of anyone that couldn't become a VSP. The biggest hurdles always ended up being like a, a real big misunderstanding with insurance, their agent getting the right type of insurance. And you guys have done an awful lot of information sharing and loading up documents to help with that because I was maybe the biggest hurdle for a while. We agreed and we actually took the VSP out of that discussion and in effect took us out of the discussion. So now you just, uh, your agent emails your certificate and of insurance, which is the way it's supposed to be done anyway. We're kind of old school with letting people upload their own. And the fraud was, oh my God. Anyway, well, now the the, uh, the support team gets them in mailbox. They upload them to your account for you. And if they see that the coverage isn't right, they just email back to the agent and say, hey, this isn't the right coverage. And the agent deals with it. A lot of times it's not even that there's a different cost. It's just that they don't understand the type of work. I mean, that has, I can't tell you how many issues that has saved. So that one and the other one that we are, we're getting rid of is we had a, this goes back to the beginning. We had a requirement for a, like a letterhead or a business card or something like that. Well, anybody can create that. And, and, you know, back in the day, it made sense because we didn't have all this sophisticated stuff like Photoshop and all that. I mean, it was manipulating pictures, not text. So, you know, now we're, we're taking that out. We don't need that. We've got other ways that we can ID people. And if you've got confusion about documentation, document that's on vehicle security professional part of our website that you can download. That's our little checklist. It's got details on every single one of those docs. And if you go to whomever you're working with on that particular document and say, they're saying I need this, they will know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I haven't had a problem with SDRM in so long. It's so smooth and fast. I don't use the mobile. I don't do it mobile though. I, I'm still on a PC, but it's just it's so freaking fast. Well, it's built on a pretty serious server back background and we're built, we're actually moving it to a cloud just because we think the volume's going to go up. I mean, right now we do roughly 300,000 transactions a year, just key in a mobilizer code transactions. So that's going to more than double with this scan tool thing. We're moving that out so that the bandwidth is flexible. It'll go up and down based on load. That'll be helpful. We do penetration testing on our system. And by the way, if you're out there, I'm not challenging you to try to penetration test our system, um, but we hired a professional company. That's, that's what they do. They break websites for a living. They came back with a few suggestions. You should do this. You should do that. They couldn't break our site, but they did have a few things that, you know, they say, ah, you could make the user experience better to do this. So we ran all these updates and we did all this new Microsoft stuff. We broke our site. First time we've broken it since we launched it. And so we had to, we in the, in the, in the middle of the day, we discovered that, that folks were having, if there was more than about a hundred people on, which that's almost all the time, but it, you know, during business hours, but if there were more than about a hundred people on, it would reset and kick them all off. So we had to actually go back to a backup on code uh, right in the middle of the day. That's the first time since we launched this thing that's ever happened. The development team was like, now we build a process so we can load test in the QA. So, you know, we'll put an amp clamp on the thing before we launch it. Right. <laughs> you know, that's really what's going on with us. We're, we're doing a lot of 
actions and activities. I, I don't want to say in the right to, well, I do want to say in the right to repair realm, but for both sides of the party, because nobody understands it. Uh, oftentimes the automakers don't understand where they're missing something. And they, and they're, you know, some of them are very adamant. No, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. And it's like, let me show you something. And then they're like, Oh my God, I didn't know about that. Well, yeah. Otherwise you probably would have fixed it. I know how you behave normally. So there's a lot of that. We are getting, I would say for the last two years, tons of requests for information and education from lawmakers and other associations. And it's a good thing. But here's what we learned from this. We have to almost literally speak to them barely at a service advisor level, right? So if you were, if you, well, you're, you do, do advisor work too. If you're talking to a customer and you're explaining them to about their car, many of the people that we're talking on don't drive. They're, they commute on trains. They know nothing about how car works, but they're making laws. We've had a lot of opportunities to turn some light bulbs on. And, and I think the, the best example of where an automaker has had an epiphany it took a few years to do it, but look at the stuff that we've been able to do with Tesla. They're on board. They're fully in the house. They We've got security with them. You, you know, you can add a key to their cars. We've still got a few things that they haven't written software for outside of their realm yet, but they're working on it. Today, we had a situation where they did an update and took down their entire catalog so you couldn't buy any parts from them. And so but one of our support guys that works with that brand a lot contacted me and said, you can't buy any parts from Tesla, period. What? So I, instead of emailing, I actually picked up the phone, called the guy that I work with at Tesla, and he goes, oh, that's interesting. I think I can get that fixed pretty quick. He had that. He texted me back two hours later, and it was fixed. So granted, that company is a computer company to begin with. I mean, really. So it wasn't all that hard for, for them to figure out an, an IT-related issue. But I mean, the fact that they're responsive like that is amazing. And we're actually starting talks right now with Rivian into the week. We've had a couple of meetings with them, but they're going to be an SDRM as well. So you'll be able to do something similar. We're still working on what that's going to be like, but they literally came to us and said, how would you do it? It's a clean sheet for us. We can do whatever you tell us to do. What works best? I said, well, what's easy for our guys is work. what works best. Together, we'll create the security. Let's just figure out how to make it easy for them. And they're all on board with that. So that's where some of these new automakers have advantages. They don't have a legacy. They got to go, oh, yeah, I got 13 vendors I got to talk to to make one change in text. So it's always interesting. You know, so I know it's frustrating for a lot of our members to watch how slow some of this stuff moves. Imagine being the guy who has to keep something on your desktop as a to-do for almost seven years. God, is that one ever going to get finished? But we're working with some of it actually is. So that's pretty cool. We actually don't have anything. Once this JLR thing goes down, we don't have anything over two years old. I'm pretty excited about that. But I'd like to say that I don't have anything more than two months old. Because a lot of these things, they take an automaker redesigning software because they brought something out, missed the mark. We've got right, it's no, no mystery. We've got an, an action right now with Hyundai Kia and Genesis. Um, th there are massive numbers of open service information requests, um, which by the way, if you ever have a problem with a car and you've done your due diligence and you've used the automaker's tools and their software and everything else, and you still can't figure out what the issue is, give us a service information request. If you're a free NASDAQ member, costs you nothing to do it. And the more information you provide to us, the better we can serve that up to the automaker. We've been working really well with, with both Hyundai and Kia here and in Korea They've had all these problems if you've used their J2534 tool. It's just never been complete from the time that it was released. 
And then they just got distracted on all this other stuff that was going on. And then all of a sudden their cars were getting stolen by TikTokers and they got a little distracted. But the problem was they promised us they'd be done with this in December of 23 and it didn't happen. And so we did an information review request, which is the next step of the NASDAQ service information standards agreement that all the automakers have signed, except for GM and BMW, who support us anyway. They just didn't like the part of it that has a binding arbitration in it, but they do everything they're supposed to do under that agreement anyway. We held that. It's got three automakers that are on that subcommittee and three experts in that brand. I go out and find them. They hold a meeting. I'm not involved in it. They review the information provided by the technicians who filed the SI are that Holly and I organize for them. Holly is the scribe. I have no idea what happens in those meetings. They give me the stuff and I serve it up to the automaker. This is what our subcommittee thinks you should do to solve this problem. And so we are working with those brands right now to get this shored up, but it's a 10 month project for them to build it out. The only thing was it was supposed to be a 10 month project 14 months ago. So this is sort of how it works in my world, but it's not that they're not willing. It's that there's no resources. And a lot of times it's not money. Oftentimes it's money. It's not always money. It's about time. It's about having people that they can pull off of this to do that, trying to build the next new model. And um, they were all building EVs. And now here we sit, some things that don't work. So I'm expecting that that will get resolved, but it's not going to get resolved until near the end of 2024. We've got some workarounds that hold your nose, but they'll solve the problem if you're desperate. When we'll publish those, so I won't go into any detail on this because it'll be outdated by the time you get it out. But, but at any rate, that's the repair side of the house. We don't get service information requests hardly at all anymore. It's always about tool functionality and availability. Yeah, I've had pretty darn good luck with it. The SIRs I've ever submitted, not that there's a terrific amount of them. I'm trying to think about the actual information side of things. And I don't, I remember early on, it was like this great big misunderstanding between say, you know, Mercedes or Volkswagen Audi, where you're trying to get service information and they're like, yeah, you have to buy this tool. You have to buy the scan tool. A really big misunderstanding because the service information within the scan tool, it wasn't independent of that. But I can't think of a service information access issue I've run into. Tool stuff. I think the last one I did, I think I submitted it wrong with the wrong concern or angle. It was on a it was a BMW that I ended up modules bricked during programming. And I, you know, I had people look at the um the process, like, did I screw up? And we couldn't really find anything. And I think the issue wasn't so much, hey, BMW should mail me new modules for free. The issue was that I think BMW dealers have access to something called an IRAP and I don't have access to that. And that I think I brought that up after the fact and it was, it couldn't reopen it. And I don't even know if there was anywhere to go with that, but that was my fault. Other than that, SIRs have been productive. You know, I think I had a Kia that J-Side, the J-Tool wouldn't um, encode but legit would. And they acknowledged it. Like, you're right. It's broke. Got to fix it. Yeah. And there's a lot of those. But if you look at, we've got a new scorecard on the website 
If you go to service information request, we have a new scorecard that short, sort of, it's not quite bug free yet. It's still doing a few crazy things, but, but it goes out and pulls back all of the SIR data from our diagnostic network platform and then gives you a report card. How do brands do? I mean, how many requests have they had? How many have they resolved, unresolved? Are they responsive according to the service information standards agreement? Do they get back to us like they're supposed to and all that? So that, that kind of gives you an overview because there, there are a lot of service information requests. But in my opinion, there are nowhere near as many as there are problems. And the more, even if you see one that, oh, yeah, I'm having that same problem, but somebody's already put that out there, you should still dogpile onto that SIR. Because the brands, a lot of times the folks we work with are like, okay, so is this a one-off? Do I just have a service engineer contact them? Or do I need to take it to the development team and figure out what's going on? And so that information from us is invaluable to those folks. I mean, if you see some of the comments Jason Kahn from Ford makes in SIRs, so I'm hoping you guys will go out and look on DN. That's also free to join and see our platform. But if you look at some of those comments he makes, I mean, he's very gracious about, thanks for telling us about that because we didn't know, we'll get it fixed. And you know, they'll reach out to a shop and say, can we dial into this with you and watch what's happening? There's been some software fixed because we've got some highly skilled folks in our side of the industry who can help the automakers. And many of the automakers are now recognizing that. You know, we got a couple of Tesla guys, you probably know who they are, uh, in our midst. They're in almost constant contact with the guys at Tesla. They're like, did you know you can do this? Or when are we going to get that functionality? And then the next thing I know, they're like, hey, guess what? We got that functionality. So I just let them roll. I mean, they've got a good relationship. There's nobody that's feeling like they're being put upon because you got these technicians contacting them. He's like, yeah, bring me that stuff. So that's how a lot of these, these this additional access comes about is an automaker being able to, or an individual at an automaker, a Bob Stewart, being able to go to his boss and say, look, all these guys want this. We can, they'll use it. They've seen what happens with their service information subscriptions. There are just nowhere near as many as it costs to build those sites. But, you know, they've got their dealers using them. So that helps. So, you know, they look at that and they're like, you know, this is a loser for us financially. It's just something we throw money in for compliance. It's an item they don't have to do for compliance. Why spend the money on it unless there's a good reason? Lots of people are going to use it. Sometimes it's, hey, we'll use it. And maybe you might want to turn your dealers on to it as well. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's just the opportunity comes when there's communication. And that's what NASDAQ's all about. One question that pops in my mind with all of this is, and not so much the SIRN, but kind of back the tooling and BSP credentials and stuff is what about the heavy hitter tool companies are all on board, right? We already know Autel on the immobilizer tools, you have to have a pin code to log in. You, you create a pin code and already we're seeing activity and support. What about the tools that don't? What about the tools that you can go on? We could pick on countries. And I think we all know what we're talking about when we talk about certain countries. Yeah. So to your point, here's how I sort of see this rolling out. And this is hard again, because technicians psychology is the car is broken. And when it's done, it needs to not be broken anymore. Right. So we're very black and white. I'm a rules guy because that's how you diagnose cars. You know what the rules are. And so... What's hard for them to track with, with how all this stuff works is you can't fix the world in one move. You got to take it a bite at a time. It's that old elephant analogy. And so the key part was, first off, there had to be pressure 
so that tool companies would feel it and say, yeah, we need to do something. Um, because, they, you know, they're good guys. A lot of them are technicians. They came from that background. They get it. Again, should I put it, should I invest in this? Is it worth my investment? Is somebody going to manage this project and make it happen? So NASDAQ has to be able to convince all of these players in this that we will manage it. We will make it happen. It will come to an end. And it won't be something that lasts 15 years and never get, even gets off the ground. That's not how we run projects. That's the first step. Okay. So they said, okay, we've seen what you've done other, where, other places. So let's do it. And what's that going to take? And I write this set of rules and I keep my fingers crossed because I'm thinking they're going to freak out. And they come back with, yeah, that should be fine. But I don't think this is, you know, we could do this and we could do that. And I was like, okay, I'll take more if I can get it. What it was, was to your point, the big players saying, let's shine the light on the people who don't play along with us. So it's going to be an evolutionary thing. Unfortunately, it's always that way. We have got the big players at the table. Let me let me rephrase this a little bit differently. We have the players whose tools are desirable to use by bad guys for illicit things. They get it. They've been subpoenaed over and over and over. And they're like, oh, we've had enough of that too. Not good for our brand. So we've got those folks at the table. They own a big piece of the market. They know that because they're going to go out there in a group, there's going to be a bunch of them that, that release at one time. Actually, I shouldn't say a bunch. It's probably going to be two or three in the initial initial launch. They know that when they go out there together, they're going out with their closest competitors people that do what they do. They know there's these little companies that are going to try to take advantage of it and say, ooh, look at us. We've got this tool. You can get around NASDAQ with it. Well, remember, there's five states that want to pass laws and they've all got attorney generals. So we're just going to say, oh yeah, here's one of those companies. Here's one of those companies. We also have friends at Customs and Border Protection who can also help with things coming into the country if they're doing something illicit and somebody will actually take action. CBP sees lots of things that they can't do anything about because nobody will take action. Our border is not only leaking people, it's leaking stuff. And so, you know, they want to do the right thing. They just need somebody to take action on it. So to that end, be an evolutionary process. And when those tool companies start getting stuff stolen, they will also get subpoenaed over and over. Now, if you happen to be not, have no presence in the United States and you get called to court, well, if you don't show up for court, then that gives a state that's called you in an opportunity to say, yeah, you know what? We're not going to let your stuff be sold in our state because you're not a law-abiding citizen. You may not even be able to legally do business in our country. That is one of the discussions I had with some of the FBI folks that we work with. They, you know, They're looking for the ways to legally control some of these problems. So if you go into that and on a NASDAQ call, it'd be a three-hour call. Because, you know, everybody would have a question about, well, why this and why that? We had it on the communications call today. And I appreciate where they're coming from and, and what they're concerned about. And believe me, we have, that's all we do is game this stuff constantly. We've got our own little war games running constantly between four of us that that's all we do is think about how can SDRM be used inappropriately? And then how can we make it work better for our members? And then where do those two meet and where do they collide? I like it. I really, really appreciate your time, sir. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for making this possible. And thank you to Napa Auto Tech Training for sponsoring. If you have uh, any questions about NAS stuff, please don't hesitate to email Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, maybe we can have Donnie back on to cover even more stuff, more of your questions. 
Until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com. 